Kay Coppin's new book, Romney, A Reckoning, has been a New York Times bestseller since its release on October 24th, and it's just a fascinating read. It's rooted in astonishing 45 one-on-one -on -one conversations between McKay and Senator Romney, mostly at his DC townhouse between March 2021 and May 2023. McKay also talked individually with Ann Romney and with each of their five sons, and their talks focused largely on the character of today's politics and larger themes that animated Romney's life, family, integrity, work ethic, ancestors, overcoming hardship, and certainly faith. These themes are woven deeply into a crisp, rich biographical story. The book includes a window into the father Mitt revered, George Wilkin Romney, 43rd governor of Michigan. Mitt's two years on mission in France, his courtship with Anne, now his wife of 60 years, whose approval he still desperately courts, McKay tells us. A fast-paced tour of his years as a businessman and lawyer, including chairing the 2002 Olympic Games in Salt Lake City, its term as the 70th governor of Massachusetts, and of course his presidential campaigns. With a candor reminiscent of the memorable 2014 Netflix documentary, Mitt, Greg Whitley's 93-minute film rooted in six years of following around with his approval, Mitt, through both presidential campaigns. McKay's new book covers not only those early political years, but also Senator Romney's current term since 2019 as the sitting junior U.S. Senator from Utah. That includes legislative hurdles and accomplishments, but also encounters with detractors in the airport, surprises and unexpected clashes with members of his own party. Today, 76 years old, smart, principled, and in some sense, part of a different political era, Romney's voice sounds clarion, honorable, cautionary. Joining McKay to discuss the book, as well as how it came to be, is the indomitable Peter Baker, chief White House correspondent for the New York Times, a former 20-year Washington Post reporter, and the author or co-author with his wife, Susan Glasser, of six books. If you've read virtually any New York Times presidential coverage since 2008, you've read Peter, even if you haven't noticed the byline. His books span five U.S. presidencies, as well as Vladimir Putin's Russia, and he immediately noticed the richness and uniqueness of this new biography by McKay. And for his part, when he's not writing books, McKay is a staff writer at The Atlantic who made the 30 Under 30 Forbes list and is a regular contributor at CNN and MSNBC. Back in 2012, he covered then-presidential candidate Romney, and his tough, fair-minded coverage was noticed. Like Mitt, McKay is a member of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and the book suggests a kind of friendship that emerged between the two of them as McKay began listening and writing. The man himself is so much more than the candidate, a theme that comes through clearly in McKay's and Peter's conversation too, from the fateful encounters inside the Senate chamber on January 6th, to how Romney, who might have been our 45th president, compares with the actual one. If the options are cursing the darkness or lighting a candle, by the end of the book, you get the sense that the senator has made his choice. He said, you know, if you can only have one line in history, you'd like it to be a good line. And I think that he probably will be remembered for this last chapter of his career. This moment when he kind of stood athwart what he considered the extremist forces in his party and did something that he thought was right, even when it basically meant the end of his political career. Enjoy the conversation. I'm Peter Baker, and I'm so thrilled to be here today with you guys, especially with McKay Coppins, author of the great new book, Romney the Reckoning. And uh, I was just telling McKay before we started what an impressive book this is, because so many of our books about current events kind of skim over the surface of the larger point. And I think, McKay, what you've done here with this book is really address and explore some of the big themes of this moment, this era. And I think 10 years from now, 20 years from now, when people want to look back and understand the Trump era and his relationship with the Republican Party and what was happening with people like Mitt Romney, this is going to be the book a lot of people are going to want to read. And so I'm so thrilled to be with you. Congratulations on a remarkable job. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about how you decided to do this. And you, you had a relationship, obviously, you covered or written about Mitt Romney before, but tell us a little bit about the origin of this book. 
Yeah. Well, thank you for saying that. First of all, Peter, I, I appreciate it. Your praise of the book, especially when it first came out was very exciting for me and especially my publisher, since you're a, a renowned author yourself. I had been covering Mitt Romney for more than a decade, I guess, by the time I approached him about this book, I covered his 2012 presidential campaign. Although it's funny, people assume that I had, I think, more of a relationship with him than I actually did, you know, in part because I grew up as a Mormon in Massachusetts, and that's not a very big world. So people kind of assume, oh, you must have had some sort of family connection or something. You know, I think my parents sort of knew him, knew of him, but we, not really. And I was very young, but I had profiled him for the Atlantic once he became a senator and then kind of kept in touch with him from 2019 on. And after January 6th, I could tell that he was sort of going through something, right? He had been, he had, you know, himself kind of narrowly escaped the mob that had broken into the Capitol. He had been an outspoken critic of the election lies that President Trump was telling and that some of his Republican colleagues were amplifying. And he had just, you know, he was, I think, really emotionally raw and angry, even in a way that you, you rarely see with Mitt Romney. He's kind of known for being very controlled and careful and cautious throughout his career. But the other thing that I think made him most compelling to me is that he seemed like he was in an introspective mood. He was kind of soul searching. Right. right? right. And as a you, you know, this, Peter, as a biographer yourself, like that, that is kind of the ideal place you want your subject to be. He, he, he was asking himself difficult questions about what had happened to his party, what was happening to the country and, and his own career and life and whether he had played any role in what had happened inadvertently. <laughs> I think that's exactly one of the things that makes this book so compelling, right? Is, yeah. that, is that so many of our politicians are unwilling to look at themselves in a critical way, at least out loud, mm -hmm. so that an author like McKay Cobbins can then record it and then tell the world. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and he does have this fascinating story, right? Because he is, you know, I, I come away, I'm, I'm curious your conclusion. I couldn't quite tell from your book, whether he was a moderate who played a conservative to get the nomination in 2012, or he was a conservative who played a moderate to get to be governor of Massachusetts. Yeah. But either way, I think a lot of what we knew about Mitt Romney prior to the Trump era was somebody who was malleable in his politics in order to get ahead. And you capture that in the book. And that sort of has a, there's a direct line from that kind of politics to today and from his, from his sort of very, you know, you might say opportunistic you know, career to the point where today he's seen as a, as a, you know, one of the few people of principle willing to speak truth to power. Which is such a strange kind of journey. That And that's exactly what, when I pitched him, I kind of said, basically, your transformation from both presidential nominee and standard bearer of the Republican Party to essentially a pariah in the party is fascinating. But even more fascinating to me was this kind of evolution from a guy who was known as this calculating, cautious politician who had often been criticized for flip-flopping and for, like, as you say, kind of malleability to now this kind of unlikely model of, of moral courage or, you mm -hmm. know, uh, willing to do things that were politically inexpedient because he thought they were right. I mean, you don't see transformations like that very often in mm -hmm. politics. And so I, I thought that was interesting. What I will say, and I write about this kind of in the epilogue of the book, is that the process of reckoning, as I use in the, you know, the word I use in the subtitle, was not like clean necessarily. You know, mm -hmm. over the two years of interviews that I did with him, he he went back and forth between being really vulnerable and frankly, even pretty hard on himself to then in some meetings being a little bit more defensive and, you know, a little bit more willing to kind of excuse himself or other members of his party. And he would he would kind of go back and forth. And, I, I you know, it's funny, I, I talked, I remember explaining this to somebody and, and they were like, it sounds a lot like therapy. It's <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> you know, and, and, I, and maybe it is kind of it was there was something kind of therapeutic about those conversations, also sort of confessional to use kind of a yeah. religious like a faith uh, <laughs> uh, metaphor, like th there was, you know, it, it did sometimes he would seem kind of repentant about mm. moments in his career where he had 
you know, crossed an ethical line or taken a position he didn't really believe in or draped his arm around a sort of unsavory character in politics that helped him, but that he wouldn't normally associate himself with. And, you know, and then other times he he would sort of push back on 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 the idea that he was culpable for that or that there were larger consequences for that kind of behavior. And so my, I saw my job as his biographer, as a writer, to kind of let him process as much as he could in real time out loud. Right. And sometimes I didn't feel like I had to press him because he was so willing to to ask himself these right. difficult questions and wrestle with them. But then sometimes I did feel like it was my job to push him a little bit more outside of his comfort zone and say, well, you know, have you thought about it this way? Or what do you say to this idea? And and it's funny because the relationship ended up being in some ways very intimate because we spent a lot of time together and a lot of kind of late night conversations together at his home in D.C. But then other times it was a little contentious and a little hmm. adversarial. And that, I, I you know, I, I think he deserves a lot of credit for not just like throwing me out, you know, or or uh, and for being so willing to kind of wrestle with these questions in real time in front of a journalist. Well, tell us a little bit about that, because it is fascinating, I, I, you know, to get somebody to open up their life to you. He gave you journal entries. He gave you access to his family. He gave you his time. Tell us a little bit about the process. How many people, how many times did you interview him? Where were they mostly? Were they all on the record? Did he have any, it's not an authorized book, but obviously it is a book of his telling to some extent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, my original pitch was, I thought I would get an immediate no too, Mm -hmm. because I said, I basically want all the access that an author would get for an authorized biography, but you know, I I retain the editorial control, right? right. So, because often authorized biographies, the subject gets to veto. You know, they read the book and they take things right. out or whatever. Did he read your book before it came out? So that was the one one agreement we made. I said, I'll let you read it before it's published, mm-hmm. and if there's anything that you think is unfair or out of context or you know whatever. I'll have a good faith conversation with you about it, but I'll ultimately be the one to decide mm-hmm. what stays in. And so he did read it. And that frankly was when we had some of the most, mm-hmm. you know, maybe contentious, but also productive conversations. Because I think that once he read the full portrait of himself as painted by me, he kind of was able to hone in on some of the things that he disagreed with, but then also. It, w- it was an occasion for me to sort of press him hardest on some of these things. Um, and he ultimately, I think, I mean, you'd have to ask him, but my understanding is that by the end of the process, he f- he was at peace with it and he mm-hmm. felt like it was a fair book. I mean, one of the things he said at the beginning of the process was that he had decided not to write a memoir because he couldn't be objective about his own life which I think requires a lot of self-awareness on yeah. his part to acknowledge. But it also meant that he didn't like everything in, in this right. book, right? And you so want when an objective look at your life, you're going to have to accept that there's going to be parts of it you're just not going to like, right? And that's almost verbatim what he said at the end of the process, you mm-hmm. know, because I will say we had these productive conversations. There were some factual errors that I corrected because he had read it. There were also a few things that he felt required more context. And when I actually looked at it, I agreed. And so I Mm -hmm. added some of that context. But at the end, he said, look, this is your book. It's not mine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I agreed to work with the biographer knowing that I wouldn't agree with every word in it. And so again, like, frankly, I think that we would be better served as a country if more of our political leaders were willing to go through a process like this, because it, it does, I mean, I think it helped. I think it was cathartic for him in some ways to sort of unburden himself, right? He gave, like you said, he gave me his journals, his email correspondence with, you know, prominent Republican politicians. But I think for him, probably the most, you know, cathartic experience was just every week having a night where I would come over and we would, we would, you know, I choose one section of his life and say, mm-hmm. okay, we're going to talk about your 1994 Senate campaign with Ted Kennedy tonight. Mm-hmm. Search your memory, search your notes, your journals, and uh, I'm going to come with questions. And well, this he would be, a, it was like a once a week kind of process? It, every week he was in Washington, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah. Um, how, many, how many of those sessions do you think you did? I, I We counted it up at one point, it was around 45. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think it, it went even higher. Oh, eventually. But but yeah, I mean, so it was it was a lot. I mean, it was over two years. And he, 
you know, I think there was something therapeutic about being able to like go over this, these various chapters of his life, tell the stories, you know, go down memory, memory lane, but also ask questions like, well, where did I find myself rationalizing things that were in my self-interest? Where did I find myself doing things that I wish I could take back now? Now, the journals and emails he gave you, two questions. One, how selective were they? Did you have open access to all of them and or, and or did he have a veto over whether you could use some of them? And secondly, what did you find in them that was most surprising or most at odds with what we had thought we knew or what he was saying publicly at the time? Or there was what, what journal entry or email you know, s- struck you the most as, as revealing an aha, okay, this is what's going on here at that time. And maybe even he didn't uh, acknowledge yeah. that. So to answer the first part of the question, he he just gave, it's funny, I didn't realize this till much later, but apparently the first, the first hun- several hundred pages of journals that he wrote, and they were typed out, he types out his journals on an iPad, that's his, his method. And I didn't realize this at the time, but apparently he didn't reread them when he gave them to me. In fact, the first time it was early in the process, the first time I got them, I was at church and I got this text from him saying, hey, McKay, before our next meeting, this might be helpful for you to look at. I'm sending you something. And I checked and it was just hundreds of pages of his personal journals. And I hadn't asked for them. I planned to eventually ask for them, Uh, but I hadn't asked for them. And it turned out he hadn't reread them. And Anne, his wife later joked, you know, if, if he had, if he had told me, Hey, I'm going to send all these journals to a reporter. What do you think? I might've said, ah, maybe, maybe you should read them first. You know? <laughs> um, we hadn't got, he hadn't, ex- he hadn't blacked out stuff or anything like that. No, he hadn't. I mean, in, in terms of how selective, I mean, it is possible that he has more journals that he didn't give me, but as far as I know, he gave me everything he could find. You know, he he's not his papers aren't organized. I mean, I, I tell the story about how at one point he wanted to get at a bunch of personal papers he had, I think, from the 2012 campaign. And they were in a locked filing cabinet that he had lost the key to. Yeah. And so he took a crowbar right. to them to open it up and then just kind of brought them all to me and dumped them on my lap. And he's like, I don't know, maybe there's something there. So there and there were interesting things in terms of like surprising things. I mean, there were, you know, a lot of the kind of juiciest revelations from the book are about his his interactions with his Senate colleagues like mm-hmm. Mitch McConnell and other senators who are saying one thing in private and another thing in public about Donald Trump. And a lot of that stuff came from, you know, I don't know if it's Mitch McConnell, but a bunch of these stories came from his journals and emails, right. right? And then I would ask him about them. And then I'd ask other people in his circle about them to kind of round out the reporting. But once he, um, gave, you, once he gave you those journals, they were free for you to use them as you chose at that point. Yes. With, you know, there were a couple things he would flag sometimes where mm-hmm. he'd say, hey, like I'm giving you these, but like this part, like, you know, let's talk about if you want to use it. And and normally it wasn't. And it was like, you know, things that would be embarrassing to somebody, but that weren't especially newsworthy right. or, or relevant, right. you know. So there were there were there were things like that here and there. Right. There were also a couple occasions where he would tell, and, and this isn't re- necessarily related to the journals, but he would tell me stories about his Senate colleagues or things that were said at Senate caucus lunches where he didn't name the source or the the, the senator who said it right. out of, you know, kind of a respect for at least some of the confidence that you're supposed to keep. It's funny because I think he was constantly torn about this. On the mm-hmm. one hand, he, he didn't want to be betraying confidences. There's kind of a standing rule that inside these caucus meetings, you're not supposed to quote each other, you know, uh, right. publicly. But on the other hand, he felt like he was often seeing these hypocritical things take place and he wanted to expose them. So he was always going back and forth. Sometimes he would tell me stories that were about a senator where he wouldn't name them publicly or he wouldn't name them to me. But then I would go and do the reporting and Mm -hmm. interview his colleagues or interview his staff and find out who the the senator was. And I would end up in the book. And, And so when he when he read the book, there were a few times where he was like, well, well, I, I didn't tell you that it was that person. And or, you know, whatever. And I was like, yeah, well, you're not the only one I interviewed for the book, right? <laughs> and so he, uh, that, that was, I think, something he had to, to kind of cope with. Now, there's a number of things in the book that I didn't know, or maybe everybody else knew and I didn't, but I was really struck by, for instance, his behind-the-scenes machinations in 2016 in trying to yeah. head off uh, Trump. They, they, obviously, we knew that he had spoken out against him, but I didn't quite know how active he was in trying to set up 
you know, Cruz and Rubio and Kasich and getting them to work together and maybe, you know, find a, la- a last minute way to stop him. I mean, how, how was that? Tell us a little bit about that. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that was one of the more revelatory things for me in his emails I, I learned about. So through basically when Donald Trump first started running in 2015, Mitt Romney, like a lot of people, sort of thought that he, you know, he would flame out, right? Romney's own primary campaign had basically seen him go up against a succession of, you know, briefly popular, but ultimately, you know, failed candidates like Herman Cain and Newt Gingrich and Rick Santorum and Rick Perry. He assumed Donald Trump would do the same thing, but was sort of alarmed by his staying power. And by March of 2016, after Trump had won several early primaries, Romney decided he needed to kind of get off the sidelines and try to do something to stop him. So from March through May of 2016, he he was working pretty actively behind the scenes on this strategy he had developed to basically deprive Trump of the delegates he would need to clinch the nomination in hopes of getting to an open pri- an open convention. And, and, you know, his thought was that they could pick a different nominee from the floor. What he did, though, was basically try to work with all the remaining primary campaigns, the Kasich campaign, Rubio campaign, and Cruz campaign, to get them to coordinate, right? His thought was, you need to stay out of each other's way. You need to choose states that you're going to campaign in, not attack each other, only attack Trump. And, and that's the only possible way for any of you to, you know, get the nomination, right? And what he found over and over again was that these candidates or their advisors would seem to indicate that they were interested in this cooperation. And, and he would often, you know, in some of these emails, they would straight up say, oh, yeah, we've been wanting to do this. The other guys just won't cooperate or whatever. It would come up again and again and again. But then days would go by and nothing would happen. And they still kept kind of battling with each other and splitting the anti-Trump vote in the primary. And it, it it's hard to remember now, but Trump was winning a lot of these early primaries with 30 percent, 40 percent of the vote. Right. He wasn't winning big majorities of Republican voters. It's just that there were so many other candidates running. And so obviously it didn't work. The campaigns didn't coordinate with each other. But what's interesting is that I think he he sees that same dynamic playing out in this cycle. And he has once again been trying to work a little behind the scenes to kind of consolidate the field. You know, in Park City, I think last month, he had his gathering of Republican donors and officials, and he urged them to pick one candidate and get behind them. And there has been a little bit of consolidation, you know, in the last few weeks. But I think he's he's his his experience in 2016 made him much more pessimistic that there's really any prospect of getting the the Republican establishment or the other Republican candidates to coordinate against Trump because it just, it, 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 it was such a failed strategy and it did drive Romney crazy. It's funny. In, in some cases I had his, I had his emails where he was like trying to be diplomatic and working with these different campaigns. But then I also had his journals where he was just fuming and venting about like how frustrated he was during that same period. So it's it kind of an interesting window into his kind of what he was doing behind the scenes. I did see Spencer Zwick, right? His guy is now with Nikki Haley, right? Does that indicate mm. that that's where Romney is maybe? Or? I, do, I don't know. I mean, I, I think when I talked to Romney about the primary field earlier this year, he was did not like Ron DeSantis. He liked Tim Scott. He he said he was impressed by Nikki Haley, but at that time felt that she wasn't being what didn't seem to be willing to go head to head with against Trump, which frustrated him. I, I would not be surprised if the kind of Romney orbit was trying to get behind Haley and, and help consolidate the field in her favor. As for whether Romney himself would endorse her or do anything, I'm not sure. She, he 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 seems pretty pessimistic about how much how much uh pull his endorsement would have at this point in a republican presidential primary i think he tells you at one point that he where he imagines right the idea of what it would have been like for him to run against trump right I mean, what, mm. what, what, i'm trying to picture what that would have been like i mean what do you think a romney versus trump campaign would be because he he i think in his telling with you he he imagines himself being very blunt and pushing back and you know strongly contesting trump but on the other hand i find his persona is so, you know, 
not that, right? Yeah. <laughs> right? He's I, not Chris Christie, right? He's not, he's not like, he, he's not, he's not good at the insult comedy. It's right. not his thing. And I'm not sure how it would work, right? It so would be- I, I think that the campaign he imagined was almost sort of a kamikaze campaign. Like he didn't think he would win, right? He would, his idea was I should run as a third party candidate pull enough, get enough, you know, support that I could be on the main stage with Trump and Biden and then basically prosecute Trump. Right. Because he doesn't think Biden is is capable of it. He thinks yeah. Biden's age and other, you know, disadvantages, he wouldn't be able to do it. I think that he's imagined he was imagining a campaign that was sort of remember that speech that Romney gave at the University of Utah in 2016, mm-hmm. early mm-hmm. in the primary, where he said Trump is a phony and a fraud right. and his promises are worth a Trump University degree or whatever. There were some kind of like one-liners and zingers in there. I think he was imagining kind of a whole campaign built around <laughs> that. It's almost like a cathartic primal scream of a presidential campaign mm-hmm. where he could just get up there and, you know, take it to Trump. And and also, I think what appealed to Romney about this was that he's run two presidential campaigns where he he both in both campaigns often felt like he wasn't really ever fully able to say what he believed on right. any issue right he was constantly hedging his positions and and kind of crafting his talking points and he he liked the idea of being able to just say fully what he believed mm-hmm. knowing that it wouldn't lead him to get to the white house but there would be something therapeutic about that that's right? really i mean in your book one of the things that's really striking is him is watching him in those earlier campaigns compromising himself right and, mm. and and everybody does you have to be you have to get a majority to win right you know so you have to then cater to the parts of the party that he clearly is uncomfortable with at that time saying things he clearly isn't really excited about saying and and you describe it i think as you know he just he sets his his, his strategy basically is whatever you have to do to win mm-hmm. not in a crass way necessarily but in a very kind of disturbing way about American politics, right? That you, there is no American president, Michael Douglas, you know, goes to, you know, Jimmy Smith goes to to Mm. Washington kind of scenario here where you can have just a, oh, I just want a truth teller who's going to be out there really, you know, and he'll he'll be able to win because he'll, he'll tell the truth about whatever, fill in the blank of whatever issue you're, you're concerned about. It just doesn't work, right? And he discovers that in his experience that you recount demonstrates that you have to compromise yourself in order to win and how that's corrosive, I think. And I think you get a little about that in the book too. It's corrosive to your spirit and your soul and your, and your conscience. I'm going to dovetail on that just a little bit, because in some ways I think that's sort of the genius of your book, McKay, is that you, you paint this sort of sympathetic portrait of these young guys who are uh, other senators who say, gosh, I mean, I don't have the money to protect my family like you do. And if I if I vote against, if I don't go for an impeachment vote, you know, the voters are going to rebel. There's a political cost. But there's also the fact that my, my wife might not be safe, which are a lot of gun gun toting Republicans are in my district. And I'm, I'm candidly nervous about that. And there's a sort of disgust at that because it's like you don't believe in the republic. But on the other hand. A sympathy to it. Yeah. You know, 30 years old, earlier in my career, would I have maybe done the same well, thing? Well, so that that's the, I asked Romney this at one point. I said, you know, if you had been in the same position you are, you were during Trump's impeachment, but 30 years earlier, would you have taken that same mm. kind of lonely principled vote? And he was honest with me about it. He said, I don't know if I can answer that. Mm. And, he's, and what he said was, I think I recognize now in myself a capacity for self-rationalization that I didn't totally recognize 30 years ago, right? And this is a theme of the book. And and I will tell you, he, I think, bristled a little about, about, bristled a little at how much this theme came up in my accounting of his his life and career. But it's not because I think he was more calculating or self-rationalizing than any other kind of politician. I think it was just that he was more willing to kind of grapple with it and recognize it now. And I find it so interesting because I think that it's such, it's such an important theme in our politics. I think that the, the, the path to this moment in American politics that I think is a pretty perilous one is paved with a thousand small moral compromises by political leaders that who have convinced themselves they're not really moral compromises, right? right? That everybody is able to talk themselves into 
uh, you know, the thing that is most advantageous to me politically is also the right thing to do. We everyone does this in politics. Frankly, I think everyone in life does this. That 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 temptation is always there. And I think what I found compelling about Mitt Romney is that like he like he was a great case study for their the unintended consequences of that kind of thinking, mm-hmm. but also the ability to kind of atone for it and, you know, repent for it or, or the, you know, at least wrestle with it. And I think that like what I would love for our political leaders to do more of is just continue, you know, not not bracket questions of right and wrong and not just convince themselves that I just have to do whatever it takes to win. And that's the right thing to do, but to at least wrestle with yes. the, the right and wrong questions. Right. I love this concept of self-rationalization. because I think you're right. That's at the heart of our politics. And I've always found in writing about politics that I really enjoy former politicians more than current politicians because they are at the end of their career and, you know, after in retirement or whatever, willing to look back and, and recognize not always as honestly as Romney does with you, but the, the, the choices that they made, the compromise they made. Mm-hmm. And there's so much more um, willing at that point in their state of the career to say, this is what's wrong with our system. And this is how yeah. our system requires you as a candidate, as a politician to be something other than what you are. And, you know, to pass judgment in some ways on the current politics, of course, over politicians are easy, you know, it's easy for them to, to judge the younger ones, but they themselves were like that too. So we, we venerate, yes. for instance, to some extent, President Bush 41, because, to, you know, in, by the time he passed, we remembered him for his essential decency and his, his uh, willingness to work across the aisle and his, his, his courage as a president to go, you know, to, to, to take this chance or that chance. But at the time, we forget he did a lot of the things that Romney did, which mm-hmm. were, you know, not always that admirable in terms of his campaigns uh, against Dukakis, for instance. And, you know, some of the times when he was, you know, he shaded his own political beliefs in order to get ahead. That's what politics, unfortunately, seems to require. So your book, what I love about your book is that we, it is a case study. Romney's not unique in that way, as you say, but it is a good case study in that. Mm-hmm. I think that's really remarkable. So tell us about the most important self-rationalization, which, of course, is the Republican acceptance, if not embrace, of Trump over these last seven, eight years, right? The And, and one good thing about your book is you, you demonstrate what a lot of us have known from Republicans off the record, but you managed to now capture them, you know, in their full-on, you know, duality, which is to say that behind the scenes, they think the guy's a clown or a dangerous autocrat or whatever. And in public, they won't say that because they think either they'll pay a price the way Bob Corker did, the way Jeff Flake did, the way Mitt Romney in some ways is going to now do. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, they just, or they're afraid for their family, as Josh just talked about. Talk about Romney's relationship with Trump and its evolution from the from the days when he accepts his not his support in 2012 and says, ah, you know, you never would have thought he'd have a day like this to today. And what does he make of his own, to your point, culpability there? Yeah. Well, so he had known Donald Trump for a long time before that infamous moment where he accepted Trump's endorsement in 2012. I actually write about the first kind of a uh, surreal long weekend Romney spent at Mar-a-Lago in the 1990s. Um, and he, he said, basically, he he had always thought of Donald Trump as a celebrity, right? Kind of a gadfly, an outrageous figure. He's always in the tabloids. Later, he was like a TV, reality TV star. But he was not certainly a serious political figure in Romney's mind, or even really a, a serious businessman, right? Romney always thought of him as this like, larger than life, famous guy, right? And when you think about him like that, it's easy to rationalize accepting his endorsement. And so in 2012, he what he told me was, you know, I didn't want to accept his endorsement at first because Trump was at the time going around, you know, championing these cons- uh, conspiracy theories about Barack Obama, whether he was really an American, whether he had been born outside of the country. And Romney thought they were ridiculous and he thought Trump was a little ridiculous, but he also was told by his consultants, look, you got to you got to let this guy endorse you or else he's going to go endorse somebody else Mm -hmm. in the Republican primary. And the way Romney talked himself into it was, well, look, 
if Barack Obama can, you know, take checks and endorsements from Kanye West and Lena Dunham and Bill Maher, like, why can't I take take an endorsement from the Celebrity Apprentice host, right? Now, it, what's interesting is it, it was, you know, obviously four years later, once Donald Trump started running for president, Romney started to see him as a serious political danger. And he recognized how toxic his form of politics was, how dangerous he was as a, as a figure in, in Republican politics. And that's when he started to become kind of an outspoken critic of him. But it's interesting. I asked him several different times over our two years about that moment of accepting Trump's endorsement. And he didn't on the one hand, he, he expressed he expressed plenty of kind of embarrassment about it and said, you know, if there's anything I did to give him credibility, then I certainly regret it. But he didn't go quite as far as fully, you know, repenting of it or retracting it or whatever, because he just disagrees as a matter of analysis with the idea that his accepting Trump's endorsement had anything to do with Trump ultimately winning the presidency four years later. He, he feels that Trump rode to the White House on this kind of once-in-a-generation populist wave that Mitt Romney really had little to do with. At the same time, he, you know, he, he again, he like, he had, he's willing to accept responsibility in a more macro sense for the ways that he had kind of coddled the far-right elements of the party for the compromises he had made in doing so. And I think in a lot of ways, his story is emblematic of the Republican establishment in general and their relationship with the far right. But when it comes to that endorsement in 2012, he never went quite as far as just fully saying that was wrong. I regret it and I'm sorry. Where he did do that in other other cases. What about his his flirtation with Trump after Trump has won the presidency and after he's called him a all these names, as you recall, that he called him in Utah, but he, he shows up at Trump Tower for the famous dinner to possibly be Secretary of State. I still didn't quite get what he, I mean, is that just, that's also self-rationalization, right? I can help definitely be a better president. And so how much is that like, is that patriotism to save the country? Is that ambition because he wanted a really good job? Some mix of the both? I, mean, I think it was both. I think that that was in, that, that was... I think, first of all, I think of that as sort of the last temptation, uh, you know, it was mm-hmm. like he, he had one last chance to sort of sell out to Trumpism yeah. and, you know, get this big job, possibly. He could have been Secretary of State. The way he explained it to me was that I had noble motivations there and kind of more selfish or self-centered motivations, right? And yeah. the noble motivations were that this was a time when Trump had just been elected, surprised everyone. A lot of people in Romney's circle, including Romney's, Romney himself, saw this as kind of an emergency. And we need all hands on deck. We need adults in the room. He was getting calls from a bunch of former secretaries of state, including Hillary Clinton, mm. saying, if you get offered this job, you have to take it mm. for the good of the country. George W. Bush told him the same thing. So that, that was the that was the noble motivation, right? Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll swallow my pride. I'll go meet with him. If I can get this job, maybe I can help avert, you know, various crises. But he also admitted there was this other motivation, which is I, he wanted the job, right? Mm-hmm. He, he said, I wanted to be president. And if you can't be president, secretary of state's a pretty good consolation prize. And like, if I'm being honest with myself, that was a big part of it. I wanted to be in the middle of the action. Mm-hmm. And and I think, again, this is a case where Romney was willing to sort of recognize these dual kind of motivations and and be upfront about the fact that he's he was often acting out of self-interest right? Yeah. And, and willing to rationalize. What would that have been like, man? <laughs> <laughs> Secretary of State Mitt Romney and the Trump administration. I mean, he did tell me. It you know it it never would have worked because he had all these conditions right he said like he was like you know I have to have veto power over ambassadors and be in charge of sub cabinet appointments and all set all you know foreign policy has to run through through the 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 State Department and and like he was like he would have violated all of those within a week within- George W Bush I talked to for this book and he said I think he dodged a bullet. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> not getting that job, which is probably <laughs> right. Yeah, I think I think that's right, and I think look what happened to Rex Tillerson; it would have been uh, exactly, exactly miserable. Not not that I mean, Romney's a more talented politician, obviously, but still. So he decides to run for Senate. 
McCain is fading from the scene and people say, okay, Romney's going to be the new McCain. He's going to be the voice of the Republican Party that will stand against Trump. But he's really not McCain, right? I always thought there was mm-hmm. a bad comparison just because McCain, he, first of all, he, McCain likes to mix it up. I mean, that was always his shtick. He, he enjoyed mixing it up for mixing it up sake almost. And he was always going to be much more willing to, to speak out on anything and everything he thought Trump was screwing up. And Romney didn't pick, take that position, right? right. Romney is more strategic, you could say, more more restrained, maybe more t- picking his shots. Talk about his approach to Trump prior to the impeachment, where he actually just finally said, I think he should not be in office. He had this idea when he first got to the Senate that he could ignore Trump, but take on Trumpism. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think this was like a fantasy that a lot of Republicans like Mitt Romney had. His theory was, look, in the first year of Trump's presidency, everything is just reacting to Trump and responding to Trump. And Trump is so much the center of attention that he sucks everyone into his vortex. And I'm not going to do that when I get there as senator. Right. I'm going to occasionally speak out on things that I feel like I need to matters of character and morality, you know, where Donald Trump falls short. But I'm going to try to just focus on legislation and policy and steering the Republican Party away from Trumpism. Because it, when he decided to run for, for Senate, and I have the pros and cons list that he yeah. wrote out right. when he was kind of weighing it, he he like mm. still it was still possible at that point to believe that Trump was sort of a fluke. Right. And that the fever would break soon and that we just need to move on. And he, he had written on his pros and cons list a line from Yeats, the, the second coming, the poem, the best lack all conviction while the worst are filled with passionate intensity. Mm. And he thought that that kind of represented the Trump era GOP, that there were still a lot of good people. They just wanted to they, they, they were just afraid they had been cowed by Trump. They lacked conviction. They need somebody like Mitt Romney, the former presidential nominee, to come in and kind of give them some confidence to speak out and say what they really believe. Once he got to the Senate, he realized that was much harder than he thought it would be. But he did spend the first year, really, of his of his Senate term trying to, if not totally make peace with Trump, at least he was trying to not pick fights with him. Mm-hmm. And like you said, that is different from McCain. He was not, he's not a political animal, really. Like he doesn't, he doesn't want to constantly be feuding with people or kind of like get, you know, delivering quick pithy sound bites in the hall to reporters like that. That's not his skill set. And he thought that he could he could avoid it. But it turned out that it, the confrontation with Trump was inevitable. How about this? His fellow Republican senators I mean, prior to now they're mad at him for revealing them to be hypocrites or what have you. But I mean, prior to that, what was your, from your reporting, what was your sense of how they saw him, particularly in the post first impeachment after he's mm-hmm. the only Republican to vote to, to convict? Did they see him as like, gosh, I wish I were as stand up as he is, or did they look at him and say, oh, that's kind of pathetic. He's not, he's got no future and I can't believe he would betray us. I, I think it was kind of a mix. I, I think that people often would get mad at him because on some level they knew he was right and they felt like almost condemned by his willingness to speak out, yeah. uh, you know. But but it's interesting. He told me, actually, I think it was his chief of, well, his former chief of staff who first told me about this, but I, I, I heard about this a bunch of times that one of the things that would happen is, you know, he would... Senate colleagues, Republican Senate colleagues would often kind of sidle up to him in private and say, hey, Mitt, I'm so glad you're out there saying what you're saying and doing what you're doing. And, you know, I wish I could do the same thing, but obviously I don't have the same constituents you have. I'm not in the same position you have. You are like, I I need to win Mm reelection. And the worst part for Romney was that they, he, he felt like they would then kind of look at him expectantly as if he was going to like express gratitude right and say ah you are yes exactly you are absolved you know and instead it drove him crazy (laughs) like he was like why why don't you just do it and what he finally ended up saying he kind of developed an answer that he would use with a lot of them is you know there are worse things than losing an election trust me right yeah and and so he, you know, I think on the one hand, a lot of them did actually respect what he was doing because a lot of them agreed with him. Not everyone, right? But a lot of them privately agreed with him. 
But I think that there was something about, especially after the impeachment, where he was kind of, it was almost a full like divorce from the Trump era Republican Party, right? There's there's kind of no going back from being right. the only Republican to vote to convict Donald right. Trump. And, you know, he went he he felt at least that when he would go to the caucus lunches after that, that people kind of looked at him askance, right? Yeah. Like he he would he never knew who to sit with. He didn't know who to talk well, to. Your description of that is like a high school cafeteria all over again, yes. right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well and this is actually well, this is actually where I think our shared faith helped me understand him, because it's not just that we were both Mormon, but we both grew up Mormon outside of Utah. And, he, you know, he grew up in Michigan. I grew up in, in Massachusetts. And so we grew up Mormon in places where there are not a lot of Mormons. And, and something that he said to me once was that, you know, growing up Mormon outside of a place like Utah, you learn to be different in ways that are important to you. And I think that th- this last few years where he has been kind of the 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 outcast in the, the caucus lunches and the pariah in the Republican Party probably has felt like times where he's been, you know, been the kind of one guy at the party not drinking or the, right. you know, the the guy who is going to go on a Mormon mission while all of his friends were in college. Like right. that, you know, I, and, and I or understood the guy who's told he's not really a Christian because you're Mormon. Because you're Mormon, who was, you know, something that came up all the time when he was running for president. And, and that was something I kind of innately understood. And, and so his his sense of sort of isolation is, is you know, I think that comes through in the book in part because I, under, I understand mm-hmm. it. On the faith front, you know, he was a BYU alum. He was a, a bishop at his as mm-hmm. stake, uh, as ward, right? He, he did have a certain stronger outspoken faith. He, he's what, he's 76 today? Is he looked to a bit differently by his peers, by his colleagues in the Senate because of that thicker mm-hmm. faith in your view? I mean, you're the one in the end of the book who says, as I watch him with his grandkids in the boat, you know, I think about him compared with the thrice married uh, adulterer, different president. I think of some different images, and he's so interested in family and legacy. Yeah. Is how big is faith in that? I think it's it's really important. I think especially, I mean, his faith has always been the one non negotiable thing in his political life. I mean, there were people in his first presidential campaign who told him, you know, you should try to distance yourself from Mormonism. Say right. that you know this is part of my heritage and family legacy, but it's not really an important part of what I believe, right? And he just flatly refused to do that. He gave a speech at the Bush Presidential Library called Faith in America, where he he fully embraced his faith and said, if you if you really can't live with a Mormon president, don't vote for me, right? But his his faith is also, I think, important in him sort of prioritizing, right? Like organizing his priorities at this point in his life. You know, when I went up to Lake Winnipesaukee in New Hampshire, where he has his kind of family compound and they do their summer family reunions. Inheritance week. Yeah, that's, that's what Craig Romney, his son calls it inheritance week because all the sons are absolutely required to be there with their families. Otherwise <laughs> they're cut off. But it's funny because watching him in that setting, first of all, he's just a different guy than he is in Washington, mm-hmm. right? Like he he is so much more comfortable. He's so much more at peace. He also, though, and I think that this is something that I I really appreciated about it. He's clearly put in the time to have meaningful relationships with not just his wife and kids, but his grandkids. Like he has kind of an intimate personal connection with each of them. And that's partly rooted in Mormon theology. And I think in faith in general, but his Mormon theology holds that families are kind of the centerpiece of God's plan. And, you know, the the Mormon view of the afterlife, I've often described as almost kind of interconnected, sprawling series of family reunions. And he he thinks about his family as the most important thing in his life. And you can tell, and and the, the contrast with, you know, I, I use the Trump contrast, but frankly, you know, as somebody who has profiled a lot of rich and powerful and famous people in my career. There are a lot of people who get to his point in life in their late 70s, and they look around and they've had very successful careers and very, you know, they're they're powerful and prominent and their role in the history in history is secure. But they look around and they kind of have crummy marriages or they're estranged from their kids or 
they, they haven't put in the time for those other things. And I think Mitt Romney, in some ways, his political career has been defined by failure, right? Like he didn't become president. Mm-hmm. He waged this kind of quixotic battle against Trumpism and the GOP and, and basically lost. But he feels like he's been successful because he has this rich family life, this rich spiritual life. And as he's thinking about the decisions and choices that he's made, he's at peace because at, at least those parts of his life are, are clear successes. And how do you think, I mean, his, you speak of family, by the way, I think you report that none of the five boys at this point even considers himself a Republican, right? Mm-hmm. right? Which is a pretty stark yeah. reminder of how much has changed. How will then he be remembered? How will, how will Romney, so you're right, he didn't get to be president people who don't get to be president, often forgotten by history, or yeah. but sometimes remembered in a way that rewards them for not having been president in some way. Right? Because, you know, <laughs> That's interesting. That's a good point. So how do you think 20 years from now, what will our grandkids think about Romney if they, if they know who he is? What will they be saying about him in the future? You know, he something he said to me, and this is how I end the book, is that basically, you know, he, he is at peace with the fact that he's probably a footnote in history, right? He didn't get to be president. He's not going to have libraries erected in his name and, you know, multiple, you know, encyclopedic series of biographies written about him. But he said, you know, if you can only have one line in history, you'd like it to be a good line. And I think that he probably will be remembered for this last chapter of his career, this moment when he kind of stood athwart what he considered the extremist forces in his party and did something that he thought was right, even when it basically meant the end of his political career. And, you know, I, 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 there is a, I write a lot about a lot of other passages of his life in this book, but I think there's something kind of hopeful about the idea of being remembered for your best moment um, in your life. And I think we, you know, we could do worse than than being remembered that way, even if we don't ultimately win. Well, I think it's a great way to wrap up. I, this is a terrific book, McKay. It is a, it is a, I think a seminal book about American politics today. You don't have to like Romney or agree with Romney to get a lot out of this book, to understand a lot about the dynamics of today's Washington and today's Republican Party, especially in the era of Trump and to figure out how we got where we are and where we're going to go from here. And I really, I recommended to anybody who's listening, you should definitely get this book, buy multiple copies, buy them for your cousins <laughs> and your uncles and your aunts and your friends and all that. Still time before the holidays. It's a great, great Christmas present for dads, Absolutely especially. great presents. So buy a lot of copies and thank you for doing the book. Thank you for thank convincing you. him to, to do it with you. This is, I think, the book that had to be written, that needed to be written, and and uh, it's a spectacular job. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for thanks to you both. Thank you, Peter. Faith Angle connects leading journalists, including those from diverse traditions, with cutting edge scholarship. Thanks for listening.